0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 8, powered by islamiclearningmaterials.com
1: Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials.
0: This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today we will be discussing the conclusion of the story of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Uh, if you heard the last episode, then you know what's going on. If you didn't hear it, you may want to go back and listen to that because it puts kind of it kind of puts everything that we discussed today into focus and context. Don't want to keep it too long. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash iran2, I-R-A-N, and the number 2. You can support the show at patreon.com slash history. All right, so that's about it. Uh, let's get into the show. We're going into Islamic History Podcast Season 4, Episode 8, The Shah and the Ayatollah, Part 2.
1: We have had every reason to believe that success in the negotiations would mark a major step towards ending the oil embargo. We would therefore think that failure to end the embargo in a reasonable time would be highly inappropriate and would raise serious questions of confidence in our mind with respect uh, to the Arab nations with which we have, uh, with whom we have dealt on this issue. I had many sleepless, sleepless nights, just wondering what is happening, because I still do not understand what has happened. Question: What is going on? But. Uh, It was not uh, so much the question that I was thinking that it was time to go. And there are those who charge that, from the start, it was the United States and its allies who supported that war against Iran and its feared fundamentalist leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. Eric Rouleau is a former French ambassador to the Middle East. Khomeini uh... Khomeini frightened everyone in the West. French interests were severely hit at the time. And it goes without saying that all action against Iran would be welcome in Washington. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax, and nerve gas, and nuclear weapons for over a decade. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil.
0: Early Warning Signs It was 1971 and Shah Mohammad Riza Pahlavi The Shah of Iran was proud of the country he led. Iran was definitely in a good place. His fiercest critic, Ayatollah Ruhullah Khomeini, was in exile in Iraq, hundreds of miles away. Savak, Iran's secret police, kept a lid on dissent giving the Shah complete political dominance. The tenets of the Shah's White Revolution of 1963 were steadily underway. Iran's economy was also doing pretty well. An American-led consortium managed Iran's oil production. Iran now received 50% of the oil revenues, much more than when the Anglo-Iranian oil company was in charge. U.S. President Richard Nixon was depending on the Shah and Iran. The war in Vietnam was teaching the United States the limits of their military strength. Americans were beginning to reconsider their country's role as global policemen. President Nixon was hoping Iran could take some of this burden away from the United States. He was hoping Iran could be the policeman of the Middle East. This role had once fell to the United Kingdom. But after the debacle of the Suez Crisis of 1958, the Brits were no longer a serious player in the region. The Shah gladly accepted this responsibility and purchased billions of dollars in American military equipment. Then, in collaboration with Israel, Iran began supporting a Kurdish insurgency in northern Iraq. Later in the decade, the Shah would send military aid to Somalia in its fight against Ethiopia. Ethiopia was backed by the Soviet Union and Somalia by the United States. But beneath the surface, the seeds of rebellion were beginning to take root in Iran. Political dissent was illegal in Iran and thousands of political prisoners languished in prison. Estimates ranged between 4,000 and 40,000 political prisoners. Amnesty International published a report stating Iran was one of the most repressive nations in the world. Since the Shah's opponents could not openly express themselves in the political arena, they went underground instead. This led to the formation of various insurgent groups. One such group was the Iranian People's Communist Guerrillas. In February 1971, they attacked an Iranian military outpost but were quickly overwhelmed. Thirteen insurgents were arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. The People's Communist guerrillas retaliated with a string of assassinations targeting American officials and Iranian military officers. Iran's security forces responded with more attacks and the cycle of violence kept going. Before long, there was a low-level insurgency underway with daily clashes between the two sides. Most of the members of these insurgent groups came from a hodgepodge of dissidents. Some were communist, but others were religious, while others just wanted more democracy. But they were mostly all educated, middle-class young people who disliked the Shah's government. These feelings of political repression coincided with a general malaise sweeping across the globe. The love fest of the 1960s was over and the doldrums of the 1970s was beginning. Oil Embargo and Oil Boom This malaise was especially strong in the Middle East where Israel had beaten her Arab opponents on several occasions. In October 1973, Egypt and Syria were hoping to change that around. The two nations launched a surprise attack on Israel during Yom Kippur, Judaism's holiest day. Egypt attacked the Sinai Peninsula in the south, which had been occupied by Israel since the 1967 Six-Day War. Syria attacked from the Golan Heights in the north, which had also been occupied since 1967. The Israelis, caught off guard, lost much of their military arsenal during the attack. To replenish their supply, President Nixon authorized Operation Nickel Grass. During this operation, the United States airlifted an assortment of military supplies to Israel. These included Sidewinder missiles, M60 tanks, F-4 Phantom jet fighters, and C-130 Hercules transport planes. Israel floundered for a while before regaining her composure and taking the initiative. Before long, Israel had turned back both nations' advances— Within two weeks of the attack, Israeli forces were less than 100 miles from Cairo and 200 miles from Damascus. The United Nations eventually brokered a ceasefire, but the Arab countries were incensed at the U.S.'s role in the conflict. The United States was supposed to be an impartial mediator, but their support had given Israel the edge. The Arab members of OPEC retaliated by cutting oil production by 25% while increasing prices at the same time. Within weeks, the entire globe was facing oil shortages and engulfed in a recession. The oil embargo lasted from October 1973 to March 1974. Iran, however, a non-Arab nation and ally of the United States, did not cut its oil production. But Iran did increase oil prices by 17%. The result was a massive influx of money for Iran. Iran's GDP tripled from $7 billion in 1972 to $21 billion in 1973. This new oil wealth gave Iran a level of independence from the United States. Iran began selling oil to the USSR and the communist nations of Eastern Europe. Economists predicted Iran would be a first world country within a generation. By 1975, Iran was a true regional power and the most influential nation in the Middle East. Concentrating Power Yet all was not well with the Shah. In 1974, Shah Mohammed Riza Pahlavi was diagnosed with lymphoma, a type of blood cancer. He had special doctors flown in from Europe to treat him, but the prognosis was grim. They told him he would die in a matter of years. A proud man, the Shah hid this information from most people, including his wife. The queen did not find out until three years later when the Shah's doctor secretly informed her. As his cancer progressed, the Shah began limiting his public appearances. But he was also concerned about a successor which presented a strange irony. His son was only 14 years old, still too young to take the throne. For years, the Shah had used Savak and his prime ministers to concentrate power. To make matters worse, he rarely delegated and preferred to deal with most issues personally. Hence, there weren't many competent bureaucrats to run the government. The Shah was the government. Facing a terminal illness, it would have been prudent for the Shah to begin grooming a replacement, at least until his son came of age. When interviewed, the Shah admitted a desire to slowly introduce democratic reforms. He said he hoped to one day relinquish control of the government to the politicians. But old habits are hard to break. Instead of preparing a new leader, the Shah seized even more control. The Shah compromised the judicial system by creating special courts run by government ministries led by his cronies. Then he closed the local courts and moved their cases to the special courts. In 1975, the Shah abolished all political parties in Iran and created a single-party system called Rastakizh. Rastakiz, which meant resurgence, was similar to the Ba'ath party in Iraq and Syria. The pillars of this new party were monarchy, constitution, and white revolution. Labor unions were compromised when Savak set up pro-government unions they could control. The Shah's desire for absolute control even extended to the religious community. In June 1975, seminary students at Fayziah College in Qom commemorated the 1963 protest against the White Revolution. During these events, they praised Ayatollah Khomeini, which was forbidden by law. Security forces surrounded the school and ordered the students to surrender. When the students refused, the police resorted to tear gas and high-pressure water hoses. After four days, Iranian commandos stormed the school and arrested most of the students. Many students were beaten and some even injured, but none were killed. The Shah ordered the closure of Fazia College and dismissed the raid as a minor incident. He labeled it another collaboration of the red and black forces in Iran. Red for the communists and black for the religious extremists. Thus, the Shah planted yet another seed of rebellion all reformers in the world had to deal with the
1: church the clergy starting from way back in europe before the renaissance and then you always had that clash between reform and church uh, but here we have not anything organized as the church there are some isolated priests Uh, with whom I had uh, to take some
0: uh, strong measures. Religious Resurgence The Shah knew Ayatollah Khomeini was still active in Iraq. The Shah, however, dismissed Khomeini's growing popularity as a passing fad. He thought the Ayatollah was part of a dying breed of religious fanatics. He was not even aware that Ayatollah Khomeini's son, Mustafa, had died while in Savat custody. But the fact was that across the Middle East, more and more people were turning back to religion. Adopting Western culture and norms had not brought them the happiness and freedom they'd been promised. Instead, they suffered under repressive dictators and were humiliated by non-Muslim countries like Israel and India. Dissatisfied with the materialism of Western culture, young people searched for answers in Islam. By the mid-1970s, young men in Iran were regularly attending Islamic classes and lectures in the mosques. Young women started wearing their hijabs in public. Even members of the Shah's own family joined this religious tide sweeping the region. Princess Shahnaz was the Shah's eldest daughter, but they had never been close. As a teenager, she had been shipped off to boarding school because of conflicts with her stepmother. While overseas, the princess fell in love with a man named Khosro Jahanbani. Jahanbani was from the Qajar dynasty, which was overthrown by the princess's grandfather Shah Riza Pahlavi. Her father did not approve of the relationship, but that only seemed to push them closer together. At first, the young couple spent a lot of time in the New York City hippie scene of the late 1960s. They used drugs and dabbled in all sorts of spiritual trends and practices. However, by the mid-1970s, they had become serious practitioners of Shiite Islam. They returned to Iran, spent most of their time in local mosques, and became two of the government's most vehement critics. Another example was Patrick Ali Pahlavi, the Shah's nephew. Patrick's father, who was the Shah's brother, had died in a plane crash in 1954. Patrick's Polish mother raised him as a Catholic. Like his cousin Princess Shahnaz, Patrick also embraced the hippie culture of the 60s, spending most of his time in San Francisco. While there, he studied various spiritual philosophies before returning to Iran and converting to Shiite Islam. Patrick also became an outspoken critic of the Shah and would be imprisoned several times. But the Shah was unaware of Iran's growing religious fervor. He spent most of his time around the wealthy, less religious members of society. Most Iranians were poor and very religious. They felt more connected to the religious scholars whom they saw every day in the mosques. It was the local imams and sheikhs who knew the people and their children by name. These religious men taught their children, counseled them in their grief, and helped financially when they could. While the Shah boasted of his country's recent advances, he was out of touch with the average Iranian. Further evidence of this was when he abolished the Islamic calendar and replaced it with the Persian imperial calendar. Overnight, the date changed from the Islamic year of 1355 to the Persian imperial year of 2535. In doing so, the Shah needlessly confused, angered, and isolated a large part of Iranian society. More money, more problems. The Shah was confident in his ability to bring Iran into the 20th century. Ignoring advice from economists, the Shah reinvested much of Iran's oil wealth back into the nation. And just like the white revolution, the Shah's good intentions had negative consequences. It should come as no surprise that suddenly injecting billions of dollars into a third world economy would cause problems. Cunning politicians and businessmen took advantage of the spending spree and grew rich with kickbacks and backdoor deals. This led to a few people getting fabulously wealthy and creating a new westernized elite class. This subsequently increased the demand for western manufactured goods, which angered Iran's local merchant class. Inflation was another problem. Prices soared and poor people could no longer afford staple foods. These problems were intensified by Iran's fairly large population and fairly small agricultural system. Iran's climate simply does not allow for large, modern, industrialized farms and could not produce enough food for everyone. This meant Iran imported most of its food. Imported food was more expensive and inflation just made things worse. Another problem was the Shah's overly ambitious plans. His infrastructure projects required technical skills and material that Iran just did not have. This led to production bottlenecks, unfinished projects, and broken promises. And then Iran's economy ran into a brick wall. In 1977, the oil boom came to a halt as the world adjusted to higher oil prices. Western nations started focusing more on fuel economy. Japanese vehicles with smaller tanks and great gas mileage became more popular. And a growing environmental movement emphasized the benefits of fuel conservation. On top of all this, Saudi Arabia increased its oil production, pushing down the price of oil. The Shah once again ignored economic principles and refused to lower Iran's oil prices. This led oil merchants to buy cheaper oil from Saudi Arabia. Iran's budget ran a deficit for the first time in years. The Shah was forced to take out a $500 million loan to make up for the shortfall. He also suspended many of his ambitious projects, putting thousands of people out of work. Despite all of this, the Shah did not decrease his military spending. In fact, he invested billions in military projects that weren't even needed.
1: With much of his royal revenue, the Shah has turned Iran into one of the most heavily armed nations in the world. The big question is why? For offense or defense? The Shah says that Iran was invaded in both World War I and II, and he will not let it happen a third time. Iran is bordered on the north by the Soviet Union and Turkey, on the east by Iraq, and across the Persian Gulf by Saudi Arabia. We ask the Shah just whom is it he fears, whom is he looking at?
0: Now it was Iran's turn to enter a period of malaise. The religious community felt ignored. Poor people could not afford basic goods. Most forms of political expression were illegal. And the Shah, with his prognosis looking dim, was aloof and out of touch. He withdrew even more from public sight. He ignored the growing unrest in his country. He blamed all discontent on a conspiracy of backwards-thinking religious fanatics and reactionary leftist communists. The Shah did not understand that his people needed more than Western trinkets and shiny new buildings. The Uprising President Jimmy Carter rang in New Year's 1978 in Iran with the Shah and his family. At the time, Iran was not really important to President Carter. He was more concerned about the ongoing peace negotiations between Egypt and Israel. The main reason President Carter was in Iran was to discuss human rights. He intended to tie U.S. aid to Iranian human rights improvements. President Carter had campaigned on restoring faith in the U.S. government. The Vietnam War, Nixon's Watergate scandal, and various CIA plots had eroded Americans' trust in their government. Jimmy Carter hoped a renewed focus on peace in the Middle East and human rights would lift American spirits. The Shah was gracious to the president in public, but he was insulted by Carter's demands. In several interviews, the Shah insisted these human rights concerns were overblown, exaggerated, and none of America's business anyway. Surprisingly, the televised New Year's reception went pretty well. Rather than criticize him, President Carter praised the Shah and his policies. The two men clinked glasses of champagne and toasted their nation's long relationship. Millions of religious Iranians saw their king drink alcohol on national television. Barely a week later, Iran's leading newspaper, Etilat, published an article called Iran and Red and Black Colonization. The article criticized Ayatollah Khomeini, accusing him of working on behalf of the British to recolonize Iran. The article stated Khomeini was really from India and only pretending to be a religious scholar. The editor of Etilat later claimed that he did not even want to publish the article. He said it was in poor taste and obviously a personal attack on Khomeini. But a government official ordered him to include it in the weekend edition. All the editor could do was bury the article near the back of the paper, cramming it into a few tiny columns. No one knows who really wrote that article, but it definitely came from someone in the government. Whoever wrote it inadvertently lit the spark that started the fire that ended the Pahlavi dynasty. The Shah was in Egypt that weekend attending a meeting on the Israeli peace talks. He was not even aware of the article's publication. Most Iranians neither saw nor read the article but a few of Khomeini's admirers in Qom did read it and protested against it two days later. After all, by this time, Khomeini's popularity was enough to be considered a marja, and one just doesn't insult a marja. On January 9, 1978, dozens of seminary students marched through the streets of Qom. A group of them broke off and attacked and burned two Etilat newsstands. Iran's security forces descended on Qom. Tensions rose and police opened fire on the protesters, killing six students. The protesters scattered, but the anger against the regime boiled over. Religious scholars throughout the nation condemned the Shah for the violence. They signed a petition demanding an apology. Grand Ayatollah Sayyid Qasim Shariat Madari was a Khomeini critic who believed Islamic scholars should stay out of politics. Yet, even he issued a rare rebuke of the violence. The Bazaris, or merchant class of Iran, joined the religious establishment in their condemnations of the killings. They went on strike and closed most of the bazaars in Tehran. Ayatollah Khomeini, still sitting in exile in Iraq, railed against the Shah and praised the martyrs of Qom. Via cassette tape, he ordered his followers to observe the customary 40 days of mourning and then, when that was over, the people should rise up against the Shah's corrupt rule. Right on schedule, 40 days later, on February 17, 1978, protests broke out in Tabriz, 300 miles northwest of Tehran. What began as a protest against the killings in Qom turned into a riot. The rioters targeted symbols of Western culture, destroying and burning several businesses. Over 70 movie theaters, banks, and hotels were destroyed. The police tried to stop the riots but were overwhelmed. They eventually resorted to deadly measures and by the time it was all over, another nine protesters were killed and dozens more injured. Over the next five months, there were sporadic demonstrations and occasional violence all over Iran. Sometimes parts of Tehran and a few other cities were temporarily shut down. Forty days after the riots in Tabriz, the religious leaders of Iran called for a nationwide day of disciplined mourning. Some of these demonstrations got out of hand, but they were mostly peaceful. Most of these gatherings were disorganized and fairly small. There was neither coordination nor cooperation between them. And most of the acts of vandalism were caused by small groups of less than 10 people. The country was still functioning and the Shah was still very much in control. Even though his lymphoma forced him to limit his public appearances, his authority was not really threatened. But most people could tell that the unrest was not just going to go away. Though the protests and riots were scattered, they were also intensifying. Bombs were going off almost weekly. Banks and cinemas were constantly being burned down. And Iranian students all over the world were protesting the Shah. The government decided to step up the pressure. Savak swept through the nation, arresting hundreds of suspects. The government launched an intimidation campaign against Iran's Islamic scholars. Soldiers raided Islamic classes, beating the teachers and burning their books. A few students were even killed. Other religious leaders were exiled out of the large cities and sent to remote areas of the country. 25 people were killed when police opened fire on demonstrators in Yaz in central Iran. Another 15 were killed in response to riots when a Khomeini lecture ordered Iranians to overthrow the Shah. However, by July 1978, the Shah indicated that he was serious about change. To appease the religious establishment, he reopened Fazia College, which was shut down after the 1975 student protests. He ordered the release of hundreds of political prisoners. He dismissed Nematullah Nasiri, the head of SAVAK, and reassigned him as ambassador to Pakistan. He promised to introduce reforms that would lead to more individual freedoms. All of this helped to ease tensions and the protests began to quiet down. And then it all fell apart. First, two influential Shiite scholars died in late July. One died in a car accident in Iran and the other died of old age in London. Forty days later, a mourning procession for the deceased scholars turned into an anti-government riot. The police came in, opened fire, and killed seven people. Ten days later, a luxury hotel in Isfahan in central Iran was attacked by 500 rioters. Nine days after that, the Rex Theater in Isfahan caught fire and over 300 people were killed. The fire was most likely set by anti-Shah rebels, but government negligence contributed to the high death toll. The local fire brigade did not have proper firefighting tools and several nearby water plugs were either broken or paved over. Panicked by the sudden increase in violence, the Shah dismissed his cabinet and appointed a new one to deal with the unrest. The new government declared martial law and banned all unapproved public demonstrations. The next day, 200,000 people demonstrated in the streets of Tehran. At first, things were peaceful. The protesters shouted slogans and handed out flowers to the soldiers. But then things started getting out of control and the military opened fire on the protesters. 98 people were killed and over 200 were injured on what came to be known as Black Friday. Things kept getting worse for Iran. On September 16, 1978, a week after Black Friday, a major earthquake hit the village of Tabas in northeast Iran. The earthquake would turn out to be one of the most devastating in Iran's history. It measured 7.7 on the Richter scale, lasted for about a minute, and claimed over 15,000 lives. Tabas and several surrounding villages were completely destroyed. Only 2,000 of Tabas's 13,000 residents survived. Despite all of this, the Shah still had reason to hope. His primary critic, Ayatollah Khomeini, had been silenced in Iraq. Iraq's powerful vice president, Saddam Hussein, assigned 40 soldiers to watch over Khomeini who was virtually under house arrest. Khomeini was prohibited from speaking publicly or giving private lessons. This would have been an opportune time for the Shah to regain control of the situation. But the Shah had given up. Weakened by his cancer treatment and depressed by the riots, he essentially shut down. And the government shut down with him. Politicians argued in parliament, but they weren't used to operating independently of the Shah. While the country burned around him, the Shah secluded himself either in his palace in Tehran or at his island resort in the Persian Gulf. And then came the labor strikes. It started with Iran's oil workers going on a strike to demand higher wages. The next month, the banking industry went on strike. Then 4,000 newspaper workers walked out to protest new censorship laws. Thousands of civil servants and teachers walked off the job also. 3,000 copper miners went on strike. Television, radio, and hospital workers all went on strike demanding higher wages and the freeing of political prisoners. Even the national airline, Iran Air, was shut down by labor strikes. Meanwhile, across the border in Iraq, Saddam Hussein was growing impatient. Since Iraq was predominantly Shiite, he worried the chaos in Iran might spill over into his country. Ayatollah Khomeini attracted the sort of trouble Saddam Hussein could not afford. On October 6, 1978, he expelled Khomeini from Iraq. This move, more than any other single action, sealed the Shah's fate. Ayatollah Khomeini wound up in France, eventually settling in the Paris suburb of Naufle-le-Chateau. French officials requested he refrain from political activities. Nonetheless, Khomeini took advantage of France's liberal policies. Khomeini was now in easy reach of the
1: world's media. <laughs> So there is no alternative to fighting.
0: In Iraq, Khomeini had been almost entirely cut off from the world. The only way to communicate with his followers was via cassette tape. But in France, the media broadcast Ayatollah Khomeini's face to all corners of the world in real time. He could deliver a message and his followers would instantly receive it. As the world watched in alarm as Iran spiraled out of control, people wanted to know more about Khomeini. Who was this mysterious man whose name the protesters chanted and whose portraits they carried in the streets? Within weeks of arriving in France, Ayatollah Khomeini was known throughout the world. He received thousands of visitors and was followed by crowds of journalists every day. Up to this moment, the protest movement in Iran was intense but had lacked a leader now khomeini filled that role he vocalized their grievances directed their movements and clarified their goal get rid of the shah and establish an islamic government from his villa in france khomeini ordered his followers to make lists of government officials to punish when the new republic was established he ordered his followers to launch a new labor strike to coincide with maharam shiaism's holiest month he encouraged iranians to stop paying taxes Khomeini openly met with visiting opposition leaders while refusing to see the Shah's representatives. He told his followers he would never return to Iran so long as the Shah was in power. He urged the military to stop supporting the Shah and unite with the people. He spoke to the press about his desire for an Islamic republic. He had already written scholarly essays and books on Islamic governance. Soon, he'd have the chance to put his theories into action. But he was careful not to give too many details. He insisted he did not want to impose anything on the people. The only way an Islamic republic would happen would be if the people wanted it. He also insisted that he would not be the leader of this new government. He was 78 years old and politics was a young man's game. As Khomeini outlined this hypothetical government, he did make a few promises. He promised universal suffrage. He promised to disband savak. He promised to ban alcohol and immoral movies. He promised to retain parliament, but that it would work with the religious scholars. Back in Iran, the country was rocked with protests, rioting, and violence. On October 11th, three students were killed when soldiers opened fire on a demonstration at Tehran University. Two weeks later, 11 more protesters were killed by police when they tried to set fire to Savak offices. Two more protesters were killed the same day in West Iran. Less than a month later, more riots tore through Tehran. The British embassy was burned. The information ministry was attacked. Banks, police stations, movie theaters, and hotels were set on fire. Prime Minister Sharif Imami, barely in office three months, resigned the next day. With the prime minister's resignation and the Shah in isolation, the military assumed more government roles. But they could do little to stop Khomeini's movements. Most nations closed their embassies and got their citizens out of the country. International flights in and out of Iran were canceled. World leaders debated endlessly on what to do about Iran. Iran's oil industry was ravaged. Oil tankers sat idle in its ports. The country that once exported billions of gallons of oil now had to import oil just to meet their basic needs. The capital Tehran was hit the hardest. Most shops were closed. All government schools were closed. Daily blackouts lasting up to five hours darkened the city. The French government warned Khomeini not to use their land to launch a revolution, but to no avail. The movement had a leader now, and there was no turning back. Massive demonstrations, timed to coincide with the celebration of Vashura, crippled Iran's largest cities. One million protesters in Tehran, 800,000 in Mashhad, 700,000 in Tabriz, 300,000 in Isfahan. By the end of the year, one thing was certain, the Shah was done. Iranian politicians openly debated a post-Shah regime. Some suggested he abdicate in favor of his son, but that idea was quickly abandoned due to the boy's youth. Others suggested the Shah become a figurehead, but everyone knew Khomeini would never agree. Iran's military leaders, traditionally loyal to the Shah, were opposed to these ideas. Most of them were not aware of his sickness. They were willing to establish a military government until the Shah was ready to return. They also expressed willingness to use deadly force to stop the protests. But within a few days of the new year, the Shah made it clear that would not be necessary. He announced he and his wife would be leaving Iran on an extended vacation. The Shah transferred $1 billion to a royal charitable foundation. He made preparations for his children to settle in the United States. Then he ordered the release of hundreds of prisoners. His representatives said the Shah was only leaving until a true republic was established. They said he'd return as a figurehead monarch but retained control over the military. No one bought this. Everyone knew, if the Shah left Iran, there was no way he'd be allowed back in. On the other side of the planet, Western leaders, including President Carter, were meeting in Guadeloupe to discuss the situation in Iran. After criticizing the CIA for not anticipating the problems in Iran, President Carter announced America's support of the new prime minister. On January 10, 1979, Prime Minister Shapur Bakhtiar announced the end of martial law throughout most of Iran. The military and police abandoned the cities and returned home. Anarchy reigned as rioters swarmed across Tehran, attacking government buildings and setting fires. The government was helpless. The military was loyal to the Shah, who was still in Iran and whom they considered their commander-in-chief. Shapur Bakhtiar was the prime minister, but his government was fragile and he had little true authority. Bakhtiar said his government had reached a compromise with the religious establishment, but he was light on the details. Not wanting to alienate the military, the prime minister said he was waiting for the Shah to leave. Ayatollah Khomeini did not make it easier for the prime minister. Even though Bakhtiar said Khomeini was welcome to return to Iran, the Ayatollah blasted his government. Khomeini said Bakhtiar was installed by the Shah, who was a criminal, hence his rule was illegitimate. Though he was thousands of miles away, Khomeini was by far the most popular man in Iran. And this statement ruined Bakhtiar's chances of establishing his authority. The day before he left, the Shah threw a small party with his family and a few friends inside the palace. The younger members of his family had already left to begin a new life in Texas. Outside, the streets of Tehran were full of demonstrators singing songs and chanting Khomeini's name. With tensions easing, the soldiers no longer attacked the demonstrators who once again handed out flowers. On Tuesday, January 16, 1979, The Shah departed the palace with his wife, Queen Faradiba, by his side. They were surrounded by a small group of security, advisers and military officials. The palace staff cried as the royal couple walked away. One general threw himself at the Shah's feet, kissing his shoes and begging him not to go. The Shah gently lifted him up and continued towards an awaiting helicopter. The helicopter flew them to Mehrabad Airport, and there the Shah had a final conversation with Prime Minister Bakhtiar. Then he and his wife boarded their plane. A few minutes later, the plane taxied down the runway, lifted off, and headed for Egypt. The Islamic Republic of Iran Iran erupted in celebration with the news of the Shah's departure. Motorists blared their horns. Pictures of the Shah were torn down and set on fire. Students and sheikhs sang songs in the streets. In France, Ayatollah Khomeini announced he would be returning soon to help set up a provisional government. He expressed hope this would lead to an Islamic republic. On February 1, 1979, Ayatollah Rouhullah Khomeini set foot in Iran for the first time in 14 years. Within 10 days, his supporters had overrun Tehran and taken control of the city. The next several weeks were chaotic as the country came to grips with an uncertain future. The military vowed to remain neutral until a new government was established. But Khomeini's followers did not want to wait for that and immediately began post-revolutionary tribunals. Several high ranking members of the Shah's administration were arrested, tried, and executed by firing squad. Nematollah Nassiri was the former head of Savak. In an attempt to calm the unrest, the Shah fired Nasiri and made him ambassador to Pakistan. Five months later, the Shah recalled Nassiri from Pakistan and arrested him for corruption. Nasuri was still in prison when the Shah left Iran and Khomeini's followers took over. Riza Naji and Amir Rahimi were both martial law governors during the uprising. They, along with Nim Atullah Nasiri, were executed by firing squad on February 15th. Nasir Mohaddam replaced Nasiri as head of SAVAK. He'd been on the job less than three months when the Shah left Iran. He was executed on March 11th. Amir Abbas Hoveida was the former prime minister of Iran and suspected of writing the article criticizing Khomeini. Just like Nasiri, the Shah had him arrested in an attempt to appease the protesters. Hoveda was still under house arrest when the Shah fled. Hoveda was executed on April seventh. Hassan Pakravan was also a former head of Savak, but had long since retired by the time the uprisings began. Nonetheless, he was arrested, tried, and found guilty on multiple charges. Hassan Pakravan was executed on April eleventh. On March 31, 1979, the people of Iran took to the polls to choose their new government. 98.2% voted for an Islamic republic. The next day, Iran announced the results to the world and that Ayatollah Khomeini was its first supreme leader. The United States formally recognized the new government, but that did not ease tensions. Seven months later, several Iranian students claiming loyalty to Ayatollah Khomeini stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran, taking 70 hostages. At first, Khomeini denounced the kidnapping, but then he decided to endorse it. Khomeini was upset with the United States for admitting the Shah for medical treatment. He suspected the U.S. was helping the Shah overthrow the new Islamic Republic. But even after the Shah died in July 1980, Khomeini still refused to release the hostages. He did allow the release of all women and African-American hostages, but the rest would remain in Iran for over 400 days. The hostage crisis ultimately led to the downfall of Jimmy Carter's presidency. They were finally released on January 20, 1981, the same day Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president. In retrospect, this was not a wise move for Khomeini. The United States has never forgiven Iran and the two countries remain hostile to this day. Over the years, the United States has frozen billions of dollars of Iranian assets and has imposed several layers of economic sanctions.
1: This horrible one-sided deal allowed Iran to continue its path towards a bomb and gave the regime a cash lifeline when they needed it the most. They were in big, big trouble. They needed cash. We gave it to them. In the years since the deal was signed, Iran's aggression only increased. The regime used new funds from the deal to support terrorism, build nuclear-capable missiles, and foment chaos. Following America's withdrawal, the United States began reimposing nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. All U.S. nuclear-related sanctions will be in full force by early November. They will be in full
0: force. Hoping to take advantage of the new government's weakness, Iraq invaded Iran in September 1980. Iran was caught by surprise at first, but eventually rallied and fought Iraq to a stalemate. The Iran-Iraq war lasted over seven years and cost over a million lives. To fund his war machine, Iraqi President Saddam Hussein borrowed $14 billion from Kuwait. Two years after the Iran-Iraq war ended, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Fearing a possible invasion of Saudi Arabia, President George H.W. Bush launched Operation Desert Shield. The United States has been at war in the region ever since. Epilogue The Soviet Union was the first country to recognize Iran's new Islamic government, but Khomeini despised the Soviets just as much as he did the Americans. As Iran's relationship with the United States worsened, more and more American warships began patrolling the Persian Gulf. The Soviet Union grew suspicious of American troops so close to its homeland. While the Shah had never been a true ally of the Soviets, at least they could work with him. They had no idea what to expect from this new Islamic Republic and their elderly supreme leader. With Pakistan and India both vying for American support, the Soviet Union wanted to secure their limited holdings in Central Asia. Their closest ally in the region was the new communist government in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union had to make sure Afghanistan was stable and secure, even if they had to do it by force. All right, Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting and inf- uh, informative and hopefully uh, entertaining and maybe even educational, inshallah. Hopefully you learned something good to here today or at least learned how um, history is connected. And that's one of my main purposes for this show, for this podcast in general, to illustrate how history is connected. And I, I hope I got to that point at the end as we saw the chain of events that kept happening the iranian revolution prompted saddam hussein to invade iran then saddam hussein ran into debt and in that and he bought a lot of money from kuwait so after the war was over with uh, with iran saddam hussein then decided to invade kuwait there were other things that led to the invasion of kuwait but the uh, the billions of dollars he owed to kuwait certainly was a part of it so after he invaded kuwait the united states started the well not got i will not say started the gulf war but pretty much got into gulf war part one and this led to uh u.s troops being in saudi arabia which According to the common narrative, infuri- infuriated um, Osama bin Laden, which, according to the common nar- narrative, led to September 11th. And here we are today. So, my point, once again, is to show you that um, this is an oversimplified example of history, but still, it shows you that history is a chain. And once again, every event is usually caused by many other events so it's not like there's a straight line this happened then that happened then that happened there there are usually many factors to a single event especially something big like a war but still I, i just want you to understand that um History is very complicated and I want you to try to develop a nuanced understanding of history and try to avoid some of the historical myths we tell each other. And we tell each other lots of historical myths, both as Muslims and even if you're not Muslim, whatever nation you're from. For instance, for instance, I'm from the United States, and we have our fair share of national historical myths. But that's a story for another, for another day. Season four of the Islamic History Podcast will be ending soon. This was episode eight. We are probably going to end around episode 10. I got two more um, stories I want to discuss. And this series that we just completed today, the Iranian Revolution, this is part of a larger series discussing several major events that happened in 1979. And all of these events are Kind of related in a way, and I kind of hinted towards some of these things uh, towards the end of that episode. And inshallah, hope you hope you'll get it. If not, inshallah, you will be getting it soon. All of these things will lead into a a much larger story we're going to cover in season five, and you'll see how that unfolds in the coming months. Inshallah. So I'm going to begin the research for the next episode immediately. Which means there's going to be a several weeks of no podcast. I do apologize for that, but I explained that um, I, I work, guys, so I have a full time job and a family and all, and you know, I don't get that much time to spend on these episodes on this podcast. But nonetheless, inshallah, I am going to start doing the research immediate, immediately for the next podcast. And this, of course, will be another major event that took place in 1979. There will be a bit of of a delay because the beginning of the year, I am actually recording this very episode on um, New Year's Day, uh, 2019. I happen to have the day off of work. Good time to get this stuff done. And so um, this time of the year, the beginning of the year is very busy at my job, so I'm going to be busy myself. I'll try to get done what I can. My point is that there's going to be a little bit of a delay for the next episode. I'm sure, inshallah, that you will understand. So there will be a short clip, by the way, um, let me, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's going to be a short clip at the end of this episode, but of a, of a new project I'm working on. And in addition, it's part of the Islamic history podcast, all part of the same thing. But I'm I'm working on a future project about the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, the famous um, Muslim ruler from the Crusades. And I hope to have the full series available sometime, sometime later in 2019, hoping sometime around the summer of 2019, Allah knows best. But my point is that I'm, I already started the work on it and the research. So after this episode, after I finish talking right now, there's going to be a short clip just introducing the story to you. Um, just something for you to hear. No big deal. Uh, it's not the full episode is not available yet. So don't look forward to anything. So uh, that's going to be about it. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials dot com slash iran two i r a n two, and you can support the show. And I do ask you to please support the show. Uh, the best way to support it will be to become a patron at patreon.com slash islamic history. If you become a patron at the four dollar level, you'll get a subscription to a podcast about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And uh, hopefully you'll find that very beneficial and interesting also. So with that, until next time, um Alaikum. Stay tuned for a clip uh, from the upcoming series about Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi. as wa Warahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Introduction On September 25th, 1187, a short, stocky man with a bushy beard rode his horse to the top of the Mount of Olives just to the east of Jerusalem. He wore a helmet and steel mesh under his simple clothes. A retinue of military officers and servants accompanied him as he studied the terrain. In the distance, less than half a mile away, the golden dome of the rock glimmered in the sun. Atop that ancient building, built by the Umayyad Caliph Abdul Malik almost 500 years earlier, was a large golden cross. A week later, Muslim soldiers threw ropes around that cross and pulled it down. As part of the negotiated surrender of Jerusalem, the cross was handed over to the departing Christian army that had tried in vain to defend the city. Though the Christians had lost the city to the stocky man with the bushy beard, they had a grudging respect for him. He had every right to wipe them out and take everything they owned, including that golden cross. Instead, he let most of them go after paying a reasonable ransom. Those Christians too poor to pay the ransom were simply free to leave. Many more Christians and Muslims learned to respect that man. He is known to history as Saladin, the Muslim conqueror of Jerusalem. But in the Muslim world, he is known as Salahuddin ibn Yusuf al-Ayubi. European Christians respect Salahuddin because of the gracious terms upon which he captured Jerusalem. This was especially significant considering the bloody sack the Crusaders inflicted on the city 88 years earlier. Two years after Salahuddin captured Jerusalem, another crusade was launched from Europe to retake the city. This endeavor ended in failure, but the crusaders brought back tales of the noble and charitable spirit of Salahuddin, further enhancing his reputation in Europe. While Westerners respect Salahuddin for his chivalry, Muslims love him mostly because he liberated Jerusalem. He brought honor back to the Muslim world when most Muslim leaders were more willing to fight each other than the European invaders. Salahuddin was a Kurdish Sunni Muslim. During his rise to power, he faced criticism and condescension from the Arab Caliphate in Baghdad and the Turkish dynasties he replaced. Some of that criticism was deserved. He fought against other Muslims just as much as he fought against the Christian crusaders and he often had to play dirty politics in order to achieve his goals. But perhaps this was necessary in order to unite the Muslims against a common enemy. Despite Salahuddin's accomplishments, he would just be another Muslim warlord who established another Muslim dynasty were not for the Crusades. He is a hero and a legend because of his role in the Crusades. And to truly understand Salahuddin We must first understand the Crusades. Western Europe Before the Crusades In the decade leading up to the Crusades, Western Europe was just coming out of the Dark Ages. The best of European culture came from the Eastern Roman Empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire. To the Muslim world and the Byzantine Empire, Western Europe was backwards and barbaric. The most advanced culture in Western Europe was Iberia, and most of that was ruled by Muslims. The great empire forged by Charlemagne 200 years earlier had broken into a collection of smaller, weaker kingdoms. These kingdoms were further divided into smaller regions controlled by dukes and counts who were little more than glorified warlords. These warlords were nominally loyal to a local monarch, but weren't necessarily subservient to them. Some of these warlords were wealthier and more powerful than their king. These warlords ruled over huge tracts of land and commanded legions of specialized warriors called knights. And these warlords would often send their knights into battle against other warlords, making this a very violent period. Divided by feuding warlords, constantly shifting boundaries, and various languages, the only thing that united Western Europe was their faith. Christianity as a whole was divided into Eastern and Western realms. Eastern Orthodox Christianity was the state religion of the Byzantine Empire and most of Eastern Europe. But the Christians of Western Europe, forerunners of today's Roman Catholics, believed the Pope was God's earthly representative. Despite these beliefs, the office of the Pope itself was very weak. Local bishops were more loyal to their king or warlord than they were to the church leaders in Rome. As such, several popes during this time were looking for ways to increase their power and influence. In 1074, Pope Gregory VII tried to build an army that would only be loyal to the church. He wanted to assist the Byzantine Empire in their constant struggle against the Muslim Seljuk Turks. However, very few people responded to Pope Gregory's call and his grand army never materialized. Though it failed, Pope Gregory's attempt to create a Christian army did set a precedent, one that Pope Urban II would use to justify a similar cause 11 years later. The Muslim World Before the Crusades In terms of science, culture, and technology, the Muslim world was well ahead of Western Europe. And while there were few active wars between the two faiths when the Crusades began, the Muslims had been pushing on the edges of Christian territory. In the West, Muslims still controlled most of the Iberian Peninsula. The Christian kingdoms were slowly gaining ground, but Islam would continue to rule there for hundreds of years. In the east, the Seljuk Turks were in constant struggle with the Byzantine Empire. Muslims had been trying to conquer the Byzantine capital of Constantinople for hundreds of years and the Seljuk Turks continued this tradition. The Seljuk Empire was once the most powerful Muslim force in the region. The Seljuk Turks originated from the steppes of southern Russia near modern-day Kazakhstan. At its height, the Seljuk Empire included most of the modern nations of Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. Three years before the Crusades began, the Seljuk Emperor, Malik Shah, was trying to root out a band of Ismaili rebels in the mountains of central Persia. These Ismailis controlled a network of castles across Persia and were considered both a religious and political threat. The Ismailis could not beat the Seljuks in the field, so they sought to destroy them from within. Ismaili assassins killed Malik Shah and his prime minister Nizam al-Mulk within two months of each other. The Seljuk empire descended into civil war as the various princes tried to hold on to as much power as they could. The other primary Muslim powers in the region were the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad and the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo. Though Muslims did not consider the Abbasid Caliph God's representative on earth, he was the spiritual figurehead of the Muslim world. He represented an extension of the authority established by Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the first four righteous Caliphs. As such, Muslim rulers gave him nominal pledges of allegiance even though they were often several times wealthier and much more powerful.